Coming up on Tech Nation, Matt Ridley. You know him from his books, including The Rational Optimist, or from his column in The Times of London on science, the environment, and economics. Today we're talking about how innovation works and why it flourishes in freedom. Then Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft heads up the COVID-19 Response Task Force for the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance. Companies, universities, and others are coming together. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2010, I spoke with Paul Ehrlich, the Bing Professor of Population Studies and Professor of Biology at Stanford University, about his book, The Dominant Animal, Human Evolution and the Environment. One surprising fact I learned from Paul Ehrlich's latest book is that Charles Darwin never used the word evolution. Yeah, it was a surprise to me when I learned it, too. And I had read the book when I learned that. It's just <laughs> yeah. a, Where is it? Where is evolution? It, you know, it's a wonderful book to read after you already know a lot about evolution because he was one smart guy. Uh, and I'm always finding stuff in it that most people think is more recent. For things. So, uh, yeah, Darwin's one of my heroes. He got everything pretty much right. Yeah. Uh, for for what they knew in those days, he got it as right as you could possibly get it. And uh, I think all of us still consider ourselves Darwinians, even though, of course, uh, a lot has been learned, particularly in genetics since then. That's the, the big area of change is we now know a lot about the mechanism, the exact ways the genes work, although we still get a lot to learn there, too. And if we'd never thought of evolution before, when we saw the genetics, we go, hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. It, it is, I mean, it, one of the funny things is people say, well, it's just a theory. Well, it's like the theory that the Earth goes around the sun rather than vice versa. Nothing is ever certain in science. If, if I could show that Darwin was dead wrong and convince my colleagues I'd have a manuscript off to the journal Science tomorrow, and so would any other evolutionist, because that's how you, you, know, that's how you do well in science, is to show that the conventional view is wrong. So the theory of why they didn't have any ham at lunch today, is that's not a scientific theory. No, that's not a scientific theory. It certainly isn't your genes driving you to that. That's your, well, you can explain it as part of a, an evolutionary theory, but it's cultural evolution. In other words, we have, it turns out, a relatively limited amount of genetic information in our DNA. You know, when I first started out doing selection experiments on fruit flies 40-some years ago, 50-some years ago now, I thought there was hundreds of thousands or millions of genes. And that allowed us to explain it pretty well. Now we know uh, that in fruit flies, there's only something like 14,000 genes. That's a lot less than a million. And trying to figure out uh, how the genome, how all the genes work together, has become infinitely more complex. But just think about the complexity of our cultural evolution. I mean, you and I are victims of a culture gap. If we had been together, say, in a hunter-gatherer group, both of us would know virtually all of the non-genetic information that the group possessed. In other words, 100 percent of it. Very, very close. Some shaman might have a weird bit. There might be a little something <laughs> about herbs that some women knew that men didn't. And there might have been a hunting technique that meant. But basically, everybody knew everything. Now, I would wager, certainly I and I suspect you can't tell 
exactly how this microphone and that thing works. I mean, there's non-genetic information all around us and how the building is constructed and how so on. How these chairs are put together. Yeah, exactly. And or, or, you know, where this cup came from and how it was designed and so on. So now, not the smartest person, not the most knowledgeable person even has one millionth of the non-genetic information of their culture. And I think that's one of our big problems. We don't have that broad understanding that everybody, until 10,000 years ago, everybody had. What you're talking about is everything is evolving. Everything living is evolving and co-evolving. I think that's extremely important. Yeah, it's one of these everything affects everything else uh, situations. But the main thing that we've done is develop these incredible brains and develop this huge supply of non-genetic information. Now, there's culture in other animals. Chimps, for instance, do different things in different populations, and and they learn from their... Even some birds learn techniques. Oyster catchers learn how to open oysters from their parents. But no other organism has ever had the level of non-genetic information that we have. And that's what's made us the dominant animal. That's why we are changing the atmosphere. We've changed the land surface. We're ruining the oceans. We're spreading toxic chemicals everywhere because we're really ingenious and have developed this huge body of non-genetic information. The problem is, of course, what we're doing with it. You've been listening to a 2010 Tech Nation interview with Paul Ehrlich about his book, The Dominant Animal, Human Evolution and the Environment. While now retired, he's still a Stanford professor, the Bing Professor of Population Studies Emeritus. I'm Moira again. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Matt Ridley. He's been here before with Genome and the Rational Optimist. Today, we're talking about innovation and how it works, and also why it flourishes in freedom. Then we'll hear from Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, about his work with the COVID-19 Response Task Force, part of the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance. Corporations, universities, and more are joining together in the effort. And now, Matt Ridley. Well, Matt, welcome back to Tech Nation. Myra, it's great to be on the show again. Well, we're talking about how innovation works, and it occurs to me, if you take any human, there's the likelihood that innovation will break out. Yes, I think innovation is one of those extraordinary features of human society that we have and other animals don't. Rabbits and rocks, they they don't experience innovation. And actually, most of our ancestors didn't uh, experience much innovation, whereas we experience it all the time. We expect it. Uh, It's a natural and it's the fuel of our prosperity. It's where all the advantages of modern civilization have come from, of course. Now, what's the difference between invention and innovation? I think this is a really important distinction because invention is uh, only a very small part of innovation. That is to say, coming up with a new prototype of an idea uh, is one thing, but turning that prototype into something practical, affordable, and uh, reliable is actually a big job, much bigger job than the original inventor usually appreciates. So he gets cross that his 
his uh, he doesn't get enough credit for it there's a no- lovely story about charles towns the inventor of the laser uh, you, he used to tell this story about a beaver talking to a rabbit looking at the hoover dam and the beaver is saying to the rabbit no i didn't build it myself but it's based on an idea of mine <laughs> uh, and i think this gets across quite nicely that that you know it's a big job turning an invention into an innovation and i think also the old adage of necessity is the mother of invention can't even begin to address all the innovation around us all the time. The, the idea that uh, necessity is the mother of invention, you can see what people are getting at, you know, that if you need to invent something, you have to. But actually, it doesn't really portray what happens in the real world, because otherwise societies that are desperate and impoverished would be more inventive than societies that are prosperous and happy. And on the whole, the opposite is true. Uh, if you look at the most inventive, innovative societies in the world developing the new, the new technologies, they've tended to be prosperous trading cities, whether in China a thousand years ago or in Italy 500 years ago or in the Netherlands and the Low Countries 300 years ago or then in Victorian Britain or then California. Innovation is kind of like a, a bushfire that flares up in some parts of the world at some times, much more than at others. It's often associated with trade. And it's often associated with relative prosperity. That is to say, people who are well off uh, invest that capital in trying to find new ways of doing things uh, and produce results that benefit everybody in the long run. But, you know, it's not necessity that's driving it. It's opportunity. Interesting. Opportunity. It's not just about money, is it? Well, I don't think innovation is just about money at all. In fact, it sometimes gets in the way. The, the, the whole patent system, the whole intellectual property system is based around the idea that we need to reward people with a monopolistic ability to earn money from an innovation. And actually, history suggests it's not very effective. In fact, it can be very counterproductive uh, in that respect, because what happens is that uh, somebody invents something, they get a patent on it, uh, they spend years fighting off other people who've got rival patents uh, on the same on a similar idea. They make a monopoly profit over it, off it. They try not to invent something new to displace it, because then they've got to go through the whole cycle again. Uh, and it's when the patent expires that you get a burst of innovation. A very good example of this is the 3D printing patents, which expired, some key patents expired four years ago. Uh, and the consequence was a great burst of innovation, which brought the price of 3D printing right down. Uh, so, uh, you know, the point of innovation is to get the price down. So the point of innovation, in a sense, is, is to save money, is to make new technologies available to pretty well everybody. And we have to be really clear. So many people think that we sit around Silicon Valley inventing things. So many times someone or some group looks at something someone else has invented or a concept someone else has, and they take it from point A to point B. That's what really drives the innovation. And we don't even have to talk about today. I'm thinking of your example of Lady Mary Pierpoint. Lady Mary Pierpoint is just a lovely example of someone who's not an inventor, 
but she's an innovator. She's she's a a, a feisty, powerful uh, literary woman who marries a rather dull man in a rather dramatic way. She elopes with him, but he turns out to be boring all the same. But anyway, he becomes the British ambassador to Constantinople, and she goes with him. And while she's there, she discovers this extraordinary habit that the women have in. Ottoman uh, society, which is that they deliberately give a little bit of smallpox from someone who's recovered to a child, and that makes the child immune. This is inoculation or variolation, later known as vaccination. And she brings that idea back to Britain. She vaccinates her own children. She persuades people, including the Prince of Wales, to vaccinate his children. And this is incredibly unpopular. The medical profession says this is a disastrous idea how dare you do something so dangerous she's you know besieged by critics for this and something similar happens in north america around the same time now she didn't invent it she got it from the ottomans but where did they get it from well we think they probably got it from china but possibly africa you know the the origins of these things are often lost in the mists of time and then she didn't perfect it either because a generation later, Edward Jenner, also in Britain, um, came up with the idea that actually all you need to do is give cowpox to people and then they'll be protected against smallpox. Uh, so he invented what, strictly speaking, became vaccination. So it's everybody is standing on the shoulders of their predecessors and everybody is passing the idea on to their successors. And that's why it's sometimes unfair to single someone out and say this is the inventor of x because the more you look at it the more you find he or she depended on some predecessor coming up with an idea and just building on it just incrementally improving it it's a surprisingly gradual incremental process innovation but there's a lot of human interconnection moving around Many people listening do not even remember the first Macintosh, which is the the mother, if you will, of all the graphical interfaces we have on all of our their computers. And oh, this was fantastic! Well, of course, Steve Jobs got that by one visit to Xerox Park Research Center. <laughs> That's what they had. Right. It's like what a good idea. Here we go. <laughs> it was all born. <laughs> Well, I think Steve Jobs is another good example of an innovator. I don't think, again, one could necessarily describe him as an inventor so much as an innovator because he's pulling together ideas from different people and uh, in different places and, and making something pretty special. In the book, and relying very much on a wonderful book called The Innovators by um, uh, Walter Isaacson, I, asked, I posed the question, who invented the computer? And... It's an amazingly difficult question to answer, actually, because if you go back, you know, you've got to consider that there's a very advanced mechanical computer at Harvard called the Mark I, which has a claim to be the first computer. But then there's the ENIAC in Philadelphia that has a sort of somewhat better claim because it's electronic, which the Mark I isn't, but it doesn't have stored programs the way the Mark I does. And anyway, both of them uh, are incomplete, but both came out of ideas connected with what a computer might be that were sort of theoretical ideas that occurred to people like uh, Johnny von Neumann and um, others, and lots of others. In fact, you know, it, we ought to be able to say who invented the computer. I mean, it's not that long ago. It's, it's obvious history. And yet nobody deserves the credit because lots of people deserve the credit and they all get put together. And some very, very talented women basically came up with most of the ingredients of software, particularly things like subroutines. Grace Hopper is a good example of one of them. 
Now, early on in the book, you write, innovation is the most important fact about the modern world, but one of the least well understood. Now, how so the most important fact about the modern world? How how do you argue that? Well, I think to explain almost anything that's going on, whether it's what's happening in our politics with respect to social media, uh, or whether it's uh, with respect to warfare and nuclear weapons, or any of the big themes of the last 50 years are the result of one innovation or another. I mean, it's 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 absolutely central to what, what we are and what we do. For example, the invention of radio, the medium we're using at the moment in the 1920s, played a pretty large role in the rise of the dictators and the descent into war. Now, it may not have been the main or only cause, but it was a contributor. Likewise, the inventor of the invention of television uh, seems to have had the opposite effect. It sort of dragged us back to a mushy middle where we all agreed with each other a bit. Then along comes the internet and social media, and many of us think it's going to be utopian and that we are going to see each other's point of view and um, uh, suddenly uh, kumbaya, harmony is going to break out. Didn't work out that way, did it? And then if you say take the same analogy back to the 1500s and look at uh, uh, the invention of printing, uh, it the, 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 the great printing innovator, by far the most effective user of printing and the most published author, is a man named Martin Luther, who's using this technology to change the world in terms of religion. Uh, and it is not trivial to say that the religious wars of the 1600s and 1500s came out of printing. So technological change can have an enormous impact. And so, of course, can social change. I mean, innovation isn't just about things. It's about institutions and people and habits uh, and ideas, too. Now, the second part of that is innovation is one of the least well understood. We've distinguished it from invention. What else about innovation do people generally not understand? Or people, how about organizations? How about governments not understand? Well, on the whole, we think that innovation is something that happens suddenly. Goes in leaps. We call it disruptive. That's generally not true. It's mostly incremental. Um, we tend to think we can force it. We can tell it what to come up with. That tends to be not true as well. For example, in the last fifty years, we've been unable to innovate much in transport. You know, we're still going around in cars and planes that go at the same speed as they did fifty years ago. Whereas in the previous fifty years, we had extraordinary changes in transport. We had flight and space travel and things like that. Uh, for the first time. Um, uh, and on by contrast, in my lifetime, I've lived through incredible innovation in computers and communications, but my grandparents didn't. They, they had the telephone when they were born and they had the telephone when they died. So we, the, we don't understand why that is. Why should one technology have advanced in the first half of the 20th century and the other in the second half of the 20th century? Um, we don't understand we miss we misunderstand where it comes from. We think innovation comes out of science, uh, out of knowledge. And that's not always true. It can be true, but it's just as often true that knowledge comes out of innovation, uh, that you get tinkering engineers changing the world, uh, and that results in 
better understanding of the world. So, for example, uh, the steam engine leads to the science of thermodynamics rather than the other way around. And there's a very nice example of this that I like to cite, which is CRISPR, the new technology for genome editing, uh, which is changing the world of agricultural research, but also medicine. Um, and this looks like a purely theoretical discovery in universities that then gets applied in the real world. But when you look further back, you find that they, the, the universities got this from the yogurt industry, which was trying to understand how bacteria got sick when they were attacked by viruses. And they discovered this immune system within bacteria, uh, which turned out to have a way of very precisely zeroing in on particular gene sequences, which could be adapted. So. Um, uh, academia and universities have a much more reciprocal relationship in this respect, I think, than we often give it credit for. So there's all sorts of things that we that we misunderstand about innovation, but there's other things that we still don't understand. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Matt Ridley. You likely know him from his many books, including Genome, Nature via Nurture, and The Rational Optimist or from contributions to the Wall Street Journal or the Times, or as we say, the Times of London, where he writes on science, the environment, and economics. He's here today with how innovation works and why it flourishes in freedom. Now, we just left with you saying, well, you know, there are things we don't understand about innovation. And I've learned, well, I'm shy about asking that question because I had... Uh, Sir Francis Crick on, who wrote a book about, you know, the scientific search for the soul. And I'm speaking with him about that. And he goes, well, we've got this and we've got that. And but we really don't understand um, everything. And I said, well, could you characterize what we don't understand? And there was a little silence. And he said, if I knew what was missing, I would have put it in the book. <laughs> so, so I don't know. Should yep, I ask yep. you, what do you think? Do you have anything? What don't we understand? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I wrote a biography of Francis Crick, so I, I'm familiar with his formidable <laughs> style of uh, interviewing. And I, I interviewed him a few months before his death. Um, and you didn't uh, you didn't get away with a stupid question. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, okay. Keep stupid, going, Matt. Yeah, I got some know, questions here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, well, uh, I come back to this, the, the, in terms of things we don't understand, I come back to this question of um, why it happens when and where it does, because it's not as if innovation is happening everywhere in the world at the same time. Uh, there are periods when it happens in one place and periods when it happens in another. You know, I don't think you would call Italy the center of global innovation today, but in the 1400s, it certainly was. All sorts of uh, ferment of new ideas coming out of there, including, for example, zero uh, and uh, the Indian numerals, which uh, a wonderful mathematician named Fibonacci brought to Europe. Now, that's an innovation, not an invention, because he got it from the Arabs and the Arabs got it from the Indians. But, the, it, uh, you know, why there? Why then? Um, and why California? Um, why Victorian Britain? You know, why these places? Um, uh, so I think there's a lot of the sort of geopolitics of innovation that w we don't uh, fully understand. 
Um, and it would be nice to be able to predict where it... Here's another thing that we don't understand. Why is innovation uh, very obvious in retrospect and very unpredictable when you're looking forward? So 21 different people came up with the idea of the light bulb in the 1870s simultaneously, independently, basically. Um, uh, uh, Thomas Edison and Joseph Swan, uh, Lodigin in Russia, you know, all these people. Um, and that was because the idea was ripe. It was ready to go. The, the, the ability to create a vacuum, the ability to blow glass, the ability to use electricity uh, for, for lighting. These had all come together and it was inevitable that people would invent light bulbs. Um, and you can't rerun the tape without Edison or Swan or someone and you'd still have light bulbs. And the same in the 1990s with search engines. Um, if Larry Page had never met Sergey Brin, we would still have search engines. We had search engines before Google. It's just they came up with a particularly good one. Um, so, it, so the search engine is inevitable then. It's ripe. It's ready. But did anyone see it coming? No. Actually, there are one or two prescient remarks from earlier in the uh, world of computing, but amazingly few. And most people, even Bryn and Page, didn't realize that's what they were inventing. They thought they were cataloging the internet. They didn't spot search as the, you know, the most profitable, the most lucrative, the most ubiquitous. I think it's one of the great inventions of my lifetime, the search engine. I use it pretty well every day in one form or another. Um, and yet nobody saw it coming. Why is that? Why is it so hard? These things look so obvious when you're looking backwards, but they are very hard to see see when you're looking forwards. Well, I'm sitting in the middle of Silicon Valley, and you know, we eat innovation for breakfast right next to a good helping of failure. <laughs> and, but we also have success. And we know about the role of serendipity, the best example being the people who have had a great success realizing later on that they were actually a hair's breadth close to failure and uh, incorporate in their, all of that experience in their next effort. I mean, there is the who happened to meet who when and things that fall into your lap. Um, I don't know if that's just how life is or if that's part of that magical thing that we call innovation when it's successful because there are people to trade with around and there's new people coming in and new things coming in so that the serendipity can happen. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it's fascinating how many innovations happened uh, to people looking for something else. So there's a woman named Stephanie Kwalek, uh found, uh, discovered uh, uh, Kevlar while working at DuPont. Uh, Art Fry developed the post-it note at uh, 3M. Um, they were both looking for something else. In the, in the case of the post-it note, they were looking for a permanent glue and they found a temporary glue and they thought, well, that's useless. <laughs> and then Art Fry went off, uh, went off to uh, uh, sing in his choir and he thought, hang on, this could be quite useful for marking my place in my in my hymn book. Um, and so he applied some to the back of some yellow bits of paper and the, and the rest is history. So that those are nice examples of serendipity. And as you say, often it comes from the, from the combination, um, from ideas coming from different people and coming together. Um, one of the, in the 18th century in Britain, there was this thing called the Longitude Prize, which was £20,000 to the first person who could determine uh, who could measure longitude when you're at sea, uh, which is very difficult. And uh, the result came, the, the, 
the winner was a clockmaker who said, well, actually, all you need is an extremely robust clock that doesn't mind being bobbing about on the waves uh, that can tell you what the time in London is and you can compare it with the time where you are and that will tell you how far west you are. Uh, and everyone said, well, it can't be that easy. It must be something to do with astronomy or something. But of course, he was right. Um, and even if you look, there are sites today, there's a site called Innocentive where uh, companies can go and post problems saying, we can't crack this problem. Can anyone come up with an idea? An analysis suggests that most of the ideas come from unexpected directions. You've been listening to Matt Ridley, the author of How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. We'll continue after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance and its COVID-19 Response Task Force. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Matt Ridley, the author of How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Most of the ideas come from unexpected directions. So um, it really does, you know, to be good at innovation, you've got to be open to uh, thoughts coming from unexpected directions. Um, and you've got to be talking to other people. I mean, if you try and innovate on your own, in secret, it won't work. Um, it's a much more collaborative process. A good example of that is a man named Samuel Langley, who got an enormous grant from the US government to build a flying machine in 1903. Uh, he was the head of the Smithsonian. He was an astronomer. He was extremely distinguished. But he set about it by building the whole machine at once without testing any of the bits of it and with keeping the whole idea secret. And he then launched it off a houseboat on the Potomac and it, in front of a huge crowd and it went 20 feet and nosedived <laughs> into the water. Um, and 
about 10 days later on an island off North Carolina to humble bicycle-making brothers from Dayton, Ohio, uh, achieved what he had failed to achieve, which was powered flight, the Wright brothers. Um, nobody believed them for years because they couldn't, you know, they weren't grand enough. Um, but what they had done is quite different. They they tested all the different elements separately. They tested the wings, the tail, the, the, the curvature of the wings. They'd done experiments in wind tunnels. They corresponded with absolutely everybody in the world who, who was thinking about flight, people who were building gliders and so on. Um, so they'd drawn on as many um, directions as possible, and they'd left the easy bit till last, which was the engine. They said all the engine has to do is power. Um, uh, so all we need is a lightweight engine. And this is a nice example. There's a, there's a guy at Google who says this is called the monkey first principle, which is if you are going to innovate by teaching a monkey to recite Shakespeare while standing on a pedestal, don't invent the pedestal first. <laughs> Make sure you've invented the monkey first. <laughs> Oh, I see. <laughs> and that, the Wright sure. brothers did that. They, <laughs> they, they hire interesting people at Google, don't they? <laughs> they they do. do indeed. It's a, it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's a strange metaphor, but it kind of works. It works. I won't be putting it up in my kitchen, but I'll. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you don't just talk about the successes and the, the processes. You also talk about frauds and fakers. Um, and we're used to failures, but... Frauds and fakers. Let's talk about that. I know, because um, I mean, there's honest failures. You know, um, f uh, people like Edison and Jeff Bezos uh, are extremely keen on pointing out that they uh, did a lot of failure to get to get to their success. So there's, you know, failure mustn't be uh, a disaster. But there are also um, people who uh, uh, came up with ideas, pursued them relentlessly, managed to get enormous amount of funding for them, uh, and were it were just wrong. You know, it never happened. Uh, it never came together, and it didn't work. And either they were um, fraudulent in some cases and knew perfectly well that they were ripping off their investors, or in some cases they were just bullheaded and optimistic and 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 wrong. Um, there's a there's a saying in Silicon Valley. I'm sure you know it well, which is "fake it till you make it." But I mean, if you look at Steve Jobs's career, there's an element of that. He would announce products that he didn't yet know how to produce um, <laughs> because he could challenge his uh, colleagues to meet that goal. Um, and it often worked. Um, now, the reason it worked was because of Moore's law, because of the incredible improvements that were happening in uh, computing and um, uh, silicon and so on at the time, so that you could produce that things were going to get better and we're going to we're going to be able to crack this this problem and the way theranos elizabeth holmes's company got into trouble um more recently was by trying the same trick with a technology which wasn't seeing these improvements because the, the beauty of uh, transistors is that the smaller you make them the more reliable they are as well as the cheaper um but that of course is not true of a of microfluidics and blood tests um the smaller the sample the harder it is to to test blood. And so uh, Theranos got into trouble because it kept promising products and failing to deliver. But it nonetheless became a darling of Silicon Valley, huge investment, $9 billion valuation at one stage. Uh, and uh, uh, in the end, uh, it didn't have the technology to match. But to be clear, that money did not come out of Silicon Valley. There was a lot of East Coast money that had never been in the tech 
field before. There weren't tech people on their board. If you look pretty clearly, because it couldn't pass the Silicon Valley test. Yes, I think you're right there, and and um, uh, but it is a it's it's a pretty spectacular example of um, the the the. The, the, Pretty spectacular, the, I'll give the, you that. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the other one that I write about in the book is the is the fake bomb detectors, which um, uh, evolved out of a, a, a completely fraudulent device that was intended to enable golfers to find lost golf balls, and they never worked, uh, and they were just a pure fraud, uh, and it was eventually exposed, but not before a lot of people had died. Now, in the area of public health, you also write about the polio virus, which was so familiar to me in terms of growing up, uh, but is also familiar today, considering, you know, just how frightened we are for everyone and how frightened we are for our children, etc. Let's talk about that story of the polio virus. Yes, I think uh, this is one of the uh, remarkable stories and a very happy ending, but it, but with, with some uncomfortable moments along the way. Um, because the the rise of polio uh, as a uh, crippling disease for uh, particularly young people, um, uh, which got worse and worse in, as the 20th century went on, became a huge cause for um, lots of charities and others to try and find, you know put money into research to try and find a, a vaccine for polio in the 1950s, uh, and it was the big it was the you know the the the, the 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 golden fleece it was the thing that everybody wanted to, to find and so there was a lot of a lot of haste a lot of competition a lot of um, desperation to be right uh, and to get this right um, and uh, you know, there were unfortunate uh, mistakes made along the way there was a, an early version of the salt uh, vaccine was badly manufactured in such a way that it actually caused polio rather than preventing it. Uh, and uh, many people actually got it as a result from a from a batch that was made by Cutter Laboratories in on the west coast. Um, but I write in the book about a rather splendid woman called Bernice Eddy, who um, uh, discovered that va- vaccines such as the polio vaccine were contaminated with a virus from monkeys called SV40, which was capable of causing cancer, and she. Uh, makes this argument and is basically fired for rocking the boat and for uh, spoiling the story that this is all going to be marvellous. But she persists and she's absolutely right. It doesn't seem to have caused an epidemic of human cancer, although it can't be ruled out that it may have contributed. But it was an example of, um, you know, on the whole, the polio vaccine was a tremendously good thing. It's, It's uh, it 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 has got to the within an inch of eliminating polio from the world. I mean, it's now gone from Africa, but there are still a few cases in Pakistan, um, and that's incredible. You know, when you think how widespread it was before that, which is all great. But along the way, harm was done, and we have to remember that 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 even though you do good with innovation, you can also do harm. Well, you mentioned Pakistan, and that reminds me. Uh, in the United States, uh, we can choose between genetically modified food and organic food uh, or non-genetically modified food, if you will, uh, even though there are no labels on it. Uh, a genetically modified food is not permitted in the UK, where you are right now. 
Uh, and yet the impact globally on genetically engineered food, it's, I find it to be a very interesting and very extensive topic. Let's talk about the impact of engineered crops in India and Pakistan. Yes, well, um, uh, particularly with respect to things like cotton, um, these, uh, the, 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 I think the best of the genetically modified uh, things is a thing called BT, Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a, it started out as a bacterium that was used by organic farmers to defeat insects. It's a bacterium that is toxic to insects. It kills insects. And by extracting the gene from the bacterium that kills insects and putting it into plants, you can make plants that are insect resistant, but completely harmless uh, for people. Um, uh, and because this was already an organic um, pesticide, you'd think that it would be very welcome. But in fact, there was a lot of resistance to it. Um, in India and Pakistan in particular, it's been used uh, in cotton. So most cotton is now grown with this because the problem with uh, insects that attack cotton, like the boll weevil, is that they live inside the cotton boll. Uh, and so it's very hard to get at them by spraying on the outside. Uh, but if the plant is producing something that the uh, insect doesn't like, then the plant is protected. And this is a nice case where this product wasn't allowed, this seed wasn't allowed in India, but a black market developed because people could see that this was a fantastically good product. It it was well protected against insects uh, and uh, it was uh, much cheaper to grow um, uh, and produced better results. And so the farmers themselves led the way to changing uh, the the minds of the country about uh, growing this product, and that today there are um, arguments also about uh, uh, BT brinjal, um, eggplant, and uh, various other um, crops. Uh, it's a very important area, and on the whole, there is no doubt now that <clears throat> genetically modified crops are doing huge benefit to the environment because they're enabling us to use fewer insecticides uh, and to um, actually use less land, less water, and, and that kind of thing. Well, you write that history shows that innovation is a delicate flower, easily crushed underfoot, but to regrow if conditions will allow. Well, certainly today we're in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis uh, and taking the scientists and engineers focused on this aspect of the situation. Uh, everyone else if they're lucky, was either sent home to work from home, but millions of others have lost their jobs or wonder if they will have them when they return. And if I read your observations correctly, and we're thinking about recovering from this pandemic for however long it takes, will that take a toll on innovation? Is that right? Well, uh, obviously, any setback to the world economy is a... Um, disaster for innovation and for technology as well as for everything else but uh my view is that we the the pandemic will alert us to the need for more innovation because we're looking at vaccine development and finding that it's hardly changed i mean i write in the book about uh, two wonderful women uh, um grace eldering and pearl kendrick who invented the whooping cough vaccine in the 1930s and they they took about 4 years to go from first idea to a working vaccine well that's not much longer than it would take today to develop a vaccine um and isn't that rather shocking that we've seen so little progress in innovation in vaccine development and i think that has to change likewise 
a new medical device takes two or three years to get approved in most Western countries. Uh, and that is deterring uh, people from trying to invent these things. If that hadn't been the case, if we'd been getting quicker decisions out of regulators, then I think we'd have more point-of-care uh, diagnostic tests to use during an epidemic like this. So the epidemic is reminding us of, of the need for innovation to solve this problem. Uh, the Ebola epidemic caused uh, quite a lot of research into antiviral uh, chemicals, some of which I think are going to be quite promising against uh, COVID-19. So it might, you know, we, we may yet defeat this this disease with a drug rather than a vaccine. You know, we haven't yet been able to defeat viruses on the same way that we defeat bacteria with, with antibiotics. Um, so I think there will be a stimulus to innovation in the medical field. But I also hope that it results in us thinking about the need to stimulate innovation generally, because if all those people who have lost their jobs need to get back to work, then the way to do that is to generate prosperity. And the way to do that is to come up with, with innovation. I very strongly argue in the book that, that innovation does not destroy jobs. Uh, we've been worried about this for 200 years, uh, but we've automated agriculture. We've automated most of manufacturing to a huge degree. And yet there are more people in work than ever before. Uh, and that's because through innovation, we invent new roles, new jobs, new things that we're capable of doing, as well as the prosperity to pay for them. So, you know, if you said to a, a Victorian engineer, um, uh, would you rather be a flight attendant or a software en uh, engineer? You wouldn't know what you were ta talking about. Neither profession existed uh, 150 years ago. Um, so uh, I do think that the way we're going to recover the world economy is by unleashing innovation and bringing prosperity to everyone. I give one example uh, in the book that I think stands out for me more than every other of, uh, of an innovation that is done right and done well and has done good. And it's the insecticide-treated mosquito bed net. This has turned around the malaria story. Malaria was increasing till 2003. It's now rapidly decreasing as a cause of death. That's largely because of this simple technology, uh, championed by the Gates Foundation, who uh, are spreading it around Africa. Uh, and it turns out, because of some very nice experiments done in Burkina Faso in the 1980s, that these things deter mosquitoes uh, as well as kill them. Uh, and that therefore, uh, you know, this is this has saved millions of lives and nobody's made a profit out of it nobody's patented it uh it's a very simple it's a low-tech thing there's no electronics involved you know uh, it just shows what we can do when we put our minds to it as a species well we haven't gotten to a lot like the fact that you're a member of the House of Lords, your Lord somebody or other, we haven't got given full <laughs> disclosure to your quote on the front of my long-ago book calling me a gonzo storyteller. Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson meets Richard Feynman. I'm still living up to both. We haven't gotten to your TED Talk about when ideas have sex. I'm afraid we've just run out of time. But I do hope, Matt, you'll come back and see us again. Myra, it's been a huge pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. My guest today is Matt Ridley. His book is How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. It's published by Harper. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. 
While we turn from one person to another, one organization to another, one anything to another, there is still the power of working together. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is leading the COVID-19 Response Task Force, which is part of the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance. Well, Daniel, welcome back. Great to be back. Now, I want to ask you about something called the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance. Alliance. We're all familiar with XPRIZE. You've been involved with the XPRIZE for years in many of its different variations. Remind us what XPRIZE is and what this XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance is. So the XPRIZE was founded, I think, 15 or 16 years ago by Dr. Peter Diamandis. Uh, And the idea was to prize uh, challenges that were audacious but possible and and encourage and incentivize folks to solve those challenges, the first one being the Ansari XPRIZE to get a a non-NASA or government rocket to space. And that's now catalyzed the whole... uh, space industry from from SpaceX to Jeff Bezos doing Blue Origin and, and beyond. Um, and there's been many versions of XPRIZES. I've been involved in the uh, coming up with the tricorder XPRIZE to make home-based diagnostic devices, kind of a la Star Trek. Um, but in the challenging era of COVID and our pandemic era here in early 2020, the XPRIZE uh, has catalyzed a a new uh, alliance called the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance, and I'm lucky to chair the Alliance Task Force with the goal of bringing together um, university partners, uh, corporate partners, NGOs, and the general public to help solve for the challenges we have in addressing COVID-19 and hopefully Future preventing future pandemics. So there may be multiple challenges under the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance. Exactly. And it's uh, it's not starting out as a bunch of prizes to start with. We're now basically trying to pull together all these amazing groups, all the sort of thousands of flowers that are blooming, trying to solve PPE shortages and new drugs and vaccines and, and uh, social network support uh, in new ways, because there's a lot of amazing things happening. And part of the challenge is to connect the dots and catalyze faster, better solutions rather than everyone you know, trying to do this in, in parallel. So I'll try and give you a, a few examples. Um, I was just on a, a, a what we call a, a jam session today where we're having folks looking at, at generating a new therapy. So it could be a, a drug therapy. And here in you know spring of 2020, we're still in the early days of developing drugs for, for coronavirus. Um, and most of them are for patients who are in the intensive care unit on a ventilator. Um, some of the trials are showing that they might shorten the course by a few days and lower mortality by a few percentage points, or certainly not blockbusters or solving things. What do we think about treating patients early? How do we triage a patient? As many folks who get coronavirus, they do fine. They may have, they're not going to feel great, but they don't end up in the hospital. How do we start to triage them early? How do you think about treating them before they need uh, oxygen or a ventilator? How do we roll out those clinical trials and connect the dots? How do we send folks home maybe with a little telemedicine kit, a pulse oximeter, or the equivalent of that tricorder to measure their oxygen levels? And if they're going in the wrong direction, um, have them develop a clinical trial kit at home to start taking whether it's something like hydroxychloroquine, which hasn't panned out for very sick patients Pro- very well. Probably won't be in the kit, but... Yeah. No. <laughs> you know, you know, or but, but maybe. Could be. But yeah. the trials for that, frankly, have only looked at uh, the sick patients. How do you start to think about... You know, we're all familiar with the common flu. Uh, there's a drug called Tamiflu, which does not work for coronavirus, by the way, but 
when you have an early early on in your course of the common flu, if you take that drug, it shortens the course. So it's it's not for the super sick, but for preventing it early on. Could we find those drugs early? And how do we create the connections between academic groups, telemedicine providers, big data folks, that we can do those sorts of trials at scale? That's one example. Um, we need to think a lot about, uh, as we try and get back to normal life, how do we test people? There's all these immunologic tests, uh, measuring your IgE, or sorry, your IgG and IgM, how do we validate those? How do we help the folks who are developing those tests get them out and deliver them? How do we lower the socioeconomic barriers? So part of what we're doing with this alliance is connecting the dots. Um, Anthem is one of the major partners, and through that is creating a XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance data collective where folks can donate their data, whether it's Anthem data, anonymized data about thousands of patients over years, or IBM, who's one of the partners, can be potentially blending their abilities to do machine learning and AI on that. We've got universities from UCI and UCLA uh, doing trials and contributing their data sets. So, and we're hoping to open up those data sets for challenges as this moves on. So the bottom line is we have a huge short-term, long-term challenge with this pandemic and potentially future ones, we need to collaborate in new ways. And this alliance is one way to start connecting the dots. One of the things I like about this is that you bring together a whole lot of people who, well, in many sense, don't have any skin in the game, but got all their skin in the game. They're trying to work here. Once you can get the right number of people there to, to coalesce, to see how to formulate challenges as to what would move things forward and what the appropriate parameters can be. The XPRIZE uh, expertise is creating such challenges and funding them and managing them and seeing them through because that's an expertise in itself that I don't know of another institution or I don't know if we want to call it an institution, an entity that has that ability to bring it together, to execute it. Mm-hmm. Other, You see individual ones, so well, this is really down our alley and we're going to give a prize if somebody can do. This is a whole process that says we can do this. Once you got it formulated, we can fund it, we can collect it, we can monitor it, we can make sure that it's fair and make sure that they reach their goals. And that actually moves things forward. So it gives me some hope. It's not just, oh, we're going to get together and talk about it. No, we've got a, an ability here to to bring it to action. Yeah, and I think part of that's finding sort of market failures. I don't think we need to have a prize around a new vaccine. There's lots of folks working on the vaccine itself, but there might be a prize about how do you distribute that once it's discovered? Or how do we take lessons? Some of the amazing folks on our uh, task force include uh, Dr. Sam Broder, who used to be the head of the National Cancer Institute, who was very involved in the early uh, solutions for HIV from AZT to the cocktails. Uh, so how do we might, how might we I'm making this up right now, do a challenge around building the cocktail of therapies that might be needed to treat the coronavirus, COVID-19 virus, which might not respond to just one drug, but need a similar type approach. How do we integrate in design thinking? The folks from IDEA were part of the alliance. They're a master at design thinking and solutions that connect dots because you need to think about a patient journey. It's not just about a drug or a device or a ventilator, but how do you then manage that patient, for example, once they've gotten out of the intensive care unit? We have I'm an oncologist. We know that many cancer patients have a lot of downstream issues from chemotherapy and radiation. That's going to be the case also for coronavirus patients, uh, unfortunately, who've been through the ringer. I mean, to think about managing that and maybe prizes around understanding those comorbidities and how to address them. So it's a real opportunity to kind of bring that hive mind together, both across the alliance, but then across hopefully future challenges. Well, this is a really good point. I mean, when we were talking about prizes that 
could result in commercialization to solve a sticky problem, um, then the money was really good because you could take it and then move it into commercialization. But there are a lot of things that create value, a lot of recognitions, a whole lot of things that could be the reward having done it uh, or the ability to work on it some more. There's any number of, of ways that we can have rewards and prices that aren't just specifically money. Uh, sometimes it's opportunity. You can reward with opportunity as an example. And one of the opportunities from the pandemic crisis is that we're getting folks who are cross-collaborating, who never used to you know, live in the same world from companies like NVIDIA to IBM cross-fertilizing with, you know, UCLA or uh, YPO or, um, you know, small healthcare startups that are doing telemedicine that can find, you know, solutions that are working at maybe small scale and then really amplify them. Um, so a lot of it, I think a lot about the solutions and opportunity is finding, just like an XPRIZE does, a novel solution and then scaling it so that it makes a big impact sooner rather than later. It's clear to me that it's really impacting the innovation ecosystem in, in a whole new way. Yeah, and the idea of prizes isn't new. In fact, what inspired uh, the foundation of XPRIZE was the fact that Charles Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic, not just for kicks, but to win a monetary prize. So, And it, again, not all prizes are monetary. I think uh, in this era of crowdsourcing, uh, we can now you can build all sorts of micro incentives uh, for folks to donate their data, to collaborate. And uh, XPRIZE is a great example of that convergence. And it's going to be really interesting to see some of the, the projects and solutions that come out by sharing data, resources, ideas. Um, again, not just for the immediate term of this COVID-19 crisis, but how do we get to recovery? How do we prevent future elements? Um, one idea that I'm spinning up is the concept that in the future, we recognize the importance of public health, but we can't necessarily have a, a huge army of public health uh, uh, workers waiting around for the next pandemic. We all want to think about the potential of maybe having a global um, public health um, core, just like folks are trained as volunteer EMTs and firefighters in, in towns where there's not a full-time force. What if we could have folks just like you're trained in CPR to learn some public health skills and be part of contact tracing when you need to uh, track someone down um, and put out those small fires before they become a full-on forest fire? Well, Daniel, thanks for coming in. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Stay safe. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. More information about the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance and the COVID-19 Response Task Force can be found at xprize.org slash fight hyphen COVID-19. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.